Hey, we're going to get started. Glad you're here. Glad you made the effort to be here tonight. Let's start off with a word of prayer tonight. Dear Father, we come tonight. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for uh, your kindness shown to us. We're thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful for our Savior, Jesus, and the forgiveness of sin, uh, the hope that we have secure, fixed in him. Lord, I pray tonight as we've come together, I pray uh, that you are pleased. I pray that you are known. I pray that you are lifted up, that you are glorified in our, in our meeting tonight. We're thankful for uh, the food we had, for the fellowship we have. I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity tonight for, for the study of your word. And I pray uh, that it wouldn't be a normal thing. It wouldn't be a mundane thing, but it would be a supernatural thing. And we would be in awe of who you are and what you've said. And I pray that it would build us. I pray that it would shape us. I pray that it would grow us. I pray that it would bear a great impact. I pray for our kids learning tonight the truth of your word. And I pray that a foundation is, is built tonight, is, is built upon tonight. And I pray it's a foundation of truth uh, that will hold in the days ahead. I pray for our youth tonight. I, I pray again the same thing, that they are growing in your truth, uh, that they're being anchored to the truth that they know the Savior of that truth, Jesus, and I pray that it also uh, bears a great impact. Lord, we come tonight and we just tell you uh, we're thankful. We, we pray all this in Christ's name, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're going to get started. Tonight we're in Lesson 40. Uh, we just finished up a section on the prophets. Uh, we've got some more lessons that we're going to pass through before we get to the New Testament. There are some things uh, that I thought, well, we ought to know about, we ought to talk about, that we ought to have a better understanding of before we move uh, out of the Old Testament. Now, we're going to talk about exile, uh, the time of exile. Our lesson's entitled, Exile, There's No Place Like Home. Key verses, now we're going to look at several uh, sets of verses, several different places tonight. Really, it's built uh, over a couple of, of different sets of verses. But we're going to start off with Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6. Now, I'll get to that in a second. We'll come back and read it. But that'll be our starting place tonight, Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6. The key point tonight is to better understand the Bible timeline and God's dealings with his people, we must have a knowledge of the time of exile. Sometimes it's called the time of captivity or the time of exile. I remember as a young man that I'd heard things about it, but really didn't understand it, couldn't explain it, and couldn't really uh, tell you how it fit into God's plan of dealing with his people. So tonight, we're going to talk about what is the time of exile, what is this time of captivity, uh, and we're going we're gonna to put into place an important piece uh, of our understanding, again, of how God dealt with his people and the timeline uh, that's heading to our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, Psalm 137, uh, verses 1 through 6. This is a psalm, a song that they would sing in captivity. And it really, it's a lament of being out of their homeland, of being out of Jerusalem. And so they wrote this song to commemorate, or really to lament, uh, the, the, what had happened in the exile. So that's what this is, Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6, a song of captivity. Here it is. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung up our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs. And our tormentors myrrh, saying, 
Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Again, as they leave, uh, we see their sadness. We see their lament of being out of, uh, taken out of their homeland. All right, here we go. We're going to start moving. If you have your worksheet, we're going to start with the point forewarned, forewarned. Uh, as we've watched, it's been interesting as we've moved across the Old Testament, as we have watched, God's people have continually gravitated toward rebellion and sin. And really, it seems like a pretty silly cycle. Uh, they, they seem to do okay, and then they go back to sin. They seem to do okay, and they seem to go back to sin. And it's really been this cycle, and it shows their hearts. They gravitate toward rebellion and sin. Over and over and over again, that happens in the Old Testament. As you watch that, sometimes you wonder, what in the world? Why don't they learn? Why do they keep this pattern up? Well, we see they gravitate towards sin. They move towards sin. And we see God is gracious in sending prophets to lead them back to the truth. And so God is always gracious. He sends a prophet, the prophets to warn them, the, the prophets to correct them, and to lead them back to the truth. And so they gravitate towards sin. God sends prophets uh, to lead them back to the truth. Yet, here's something we see. He also promised he would judge their sin. And so it, it's not an empty threat, and it's not a, a correction without a threat. He always promises he's going to judge sin. That's what he does. And so he tells them, I'm going to judge your sin. He sends the prophets. His goal is to lead them back. But it's also with the promise that he would judge their sin. Well, as the people continually march into moral decay, as they continually go into disobedience and false worship, he begins to tell them or to foretell them of his judgment that will happen by their being taken captive and driven from their homeland. So here's the cycle. Now, they fall into sin. He sends a prophet to try to lead them back. They gravitate back towards sin. He sends a prophet to try to lead them back. Well, he starts to tell them, if you're going to walk in disobedience, if you're going to have false worship, there's going to be a day when you're going to be taken out of your homeland and you're going to be held captive. And that's going to be because of your sin. That's going to be in judgment of your sin. Hosea, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, Isaiah, all prophesied of these events. Now, I want you to see this. It's not just any judgment of sin. He doesn't just say, I'm going to judge you for your sin. He says it's going to be like this. It's going to be specific to this judgment. If you're not going to follow me in obedience, you're going to be taken captive. You're going to be led out of your land. It's a very specific judgment that he warns them of. Again, a string of prophets tell them this is going to happen. Isaiah chapter 6, 11, and 12. Could have looked at a lot of verses. Here's just a couple. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away 
and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Now, that's just one place that God says, this is what's going to happen. Your cities are going to be broken into. Uh, they're going to they're be uh, under siege. Your people are going to be led away. Your houses are going to be empty. And this is going to be a judgment for your sin. All right, here's, here's the first thing to think about, the first thing to consider tonight, and that is this. Why do people, why did they, why do we as people disregard the warnings of God? And I think, well, that's just dumb. If God says this is what's going to happen, why did they disregard that? Why do we disregard that? And I, and I go back, you know what? God tells us how to structure our home. God tells us how to operate in our marriages. God tells us how to operate our finances. And he tells us of the ruin that will happen if we're not going to be obedient. Why do people disregard the warnings of God? Now, it, it's even worse than that. When I, when I think about that, why do we do that? Well, here's a crazier question. Why do we do that two times? Why do we do that three times? God says this is how it's going to be. That's how it is. We find the chaos and the trouble from walking in disobedience. Why do we do it three times? Why do we do it four times? That is the pattern of God's people. He brings them back. They go back to sin. He brings them back. He tells them there's going to be a judgment if you do not walk in obedience. They continue not to listen. All right, here we go with the actual exile account. The first is this, the fall of Israel. The fall of Israel. Now, remember the kingdom is split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, Israel, and there's the southern kingdom, Judah. Well, the first one to fall is the northern kingdom, of Israel. It was the first to suffer the prophesied fate that God had promised. Uh, they were walking in sin, and really it's pretty unbelievable the, the sins that they were involved in, the sexual sin that they were involved in, the false worship that they were involved in, the pagan stuff that they had pulled in that they were practicing. Uh, they had become a very evil people, a very wicked people. I want you to start to think about that. And God used the wicked Assyrian empire to exact his judgment. So he said, uh, if you're not going to walk in obedience, this is what's going to happen to you. They're walking in wickedness, and the evil Assyrian empire carries out his judgment. Now, I think that's interesting. God didn't use his people, and he doesn't use good people. He used wicked people. He used the enemy to carry out his judgment. I want you to start to think about what we're talking about. God says, you know what, I'll take wicked people and I'll use them as an instrument in my hand to carry out this judgment. The process started in 734 B.C. Now, the Assyrians come, they invade, they begin to take over Israel, they start to require taxes to be paid. After that, the capital city of Samaria was overtaken and eventually the people are led away into captivity. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his servant. The king became his servant and paid him tribute. He began paying the king 
of Assyria. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, who had sent messengers to so king of Egypt and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria. So he sees he's trying to build an alliance with the Egyptians as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. And the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile in Assyria and settled them in Halah and Haber on the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. All right, so God said this is what's happened. The Assyrians come. They start to take over the land. Uh, they, first they attack, but they allow the, the Israelites to stay there. They start to require attacks from them. Uh, they find out, he finds out the king is setting them up for, for betrayal, and so they take over the area. They're taken away. They're taken out of the land. Now, I want you to watch this. This is a very smart plan. Uh, we start to see how history unfolds, and you see a very smart plan. The Assyrians were a violent people. They were a mean people. Uh, they, would, they would attack, and to, to, to be an example to other folks, when they defeated an army, they would cut off all their heads, and they would stack them in pyramids. And so when you came close, you would know this is a terrible army, a violent army. Uh, these were violent people. They had no problem killing the opposition. So it didn't bother them to kill everybody. It didn't bother them to stomp out a whole army. That didn't bother them. However, in their wisdom, they decided the best thing, the best way to build an empire was not to kill the people. Now see this. Their goal wasn't to just take control. Their, their goal is to build an empire. Well, they decide the best way to build an empire is not to kill the people, but to take them somewhere else and reintroduce them to the culture. Let them move into the culture. Let them get jobs. Let them have businesses. Uh, let, them, let them live uh, in this other area of the culture and then bring other folks into the area that they had been taken out of. So they have a plan. Our goal is to establish an empire. We're not going to do that by killing everybody. What we need are loyal subjects. What we need are people to pay taxes. So we'll take them out. We'll take them somewhere else. We'll plug them in there, and we'll take some other folks and put them there. Let me read 2 Kings 17, 7 through 18. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and every under green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. 
Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their father, and his warnings which he, with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning the Lord, which the Lord had commanded them not to look like them. They forsake all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped the host of heaven, and served the Baal. All right. God tells them, here's what you do. You walk in obedience. You honor me. Uh, they become exceedingly wicked. Now, I want to explain something. Uh, no one ever explained this. I think when you see it, uh, you're going to start to see something. I keep talking about, be sure and notice something. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Notice the parallels of what's happening today. And that's what I want you to see. Notice the things that are going on then that we're going to see happening today. They were impressed with the neighbors. They wanted to look like the neighbors. They, they took on the, the wicked practices of the neighbors. It says they built an Asherah. Um, this, is, this is a pretty perverse thing. And Asherah, Asherah was the, uh, the god of sex, a goddess of sex. She was supposed to be the mother of Baal. Uh, she is a false god. And her worship included all sorts of, of sexual perversion, of homosexuality, of perversion with prostitutes. And to build an Asherah, I never heard this talk, this may be something new for you, is a statue of a penis. They were about six foot tall. It's a six foot tall statue of a penis. It was vile. It was gross. It was revolting. And it, it really illustrated the sexual perversion of the culture. All right, watch today. We, we, we live in a day and you go, man, we're wicked. Man, we're evil. Uh, pornography, garbage, filth, revolting things. And you go, well, you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, they were grotesque. They were wicked. Uh, we read in several of the places in the Old Testament, they would build those statues in the temple courtyard. Can you imagine that uh, as, as part of their pagan practice? So they're transported off to a foreign land. Uh, strangers are brought in and put in their land. If you never wanted to know that story, I'm sorry, but now you know it. All right, the next thing that happens is the fall of Judah. That's what happens to Israel. Uh, here's, here's what happens with the fall of Judah. Even being warned, here's the crazy, and even seeing what happened to Israel, guess what they do? They keep on in their wickedness. They bring in the pagan customs of the neighbors. Uh, they, they continue in, in, in a sexual deviation. And in disobedience, they also earn the judgment of God uh, in their own captivity. Uh, this process begins for them in 598 B.C. The first group is is captured and led away into exile. Uh, and then after that, in 587, Jerusalem is besieged, is under attack, and it is destroyed. Can you imagine that? The pride, uh, the, the giant capital city, the impressive capital city, it is, it is torn apart. 
and its occupants are led into captivity as well. 2 Kings 24, 10 through 16. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants, and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out from all of there the treasures of the house of the Lord. Now remember how ornate the temple was, the gold, the silver, all of the fine stuff. Now this pagan king takes all that and carries it away. The treasures of the king's house and cut into pieces the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. A, a while back I was talking to my sons and they were saying, Solomon had all that wealth, Solomon had all that wealth. That's so impressive. Where did it go? This is where it went. They carried it off. They chopped it up, they looted it, and took it away. Then he led all way into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor. 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remain except the poorest people of the land. Anybody educated, anybody with a skill, anybody that can do anything, they took and they left. So he led Jehoshaphat away into exile to Babylon. Also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land he led away into exile and from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000. And the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And those the king of Babylon brought into exile in Babylon. I'm going to read chapter 25, verses 1 through 21. Story continues. Now in the ninth year of the reign, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came he and all his army against Jerusalem. They camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken into, and all the men of war fled by night and by way of the gate between the two walls beside the king's garden. Though the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went out by Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all of his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him, into the, brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And he passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. The last thing he saw was his sons killed, then they pulled out his eyes. In the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every house, he burned with fire. So the army of the Chaldeans, who were the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, 
carried them away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. All right, they take all the people out. They leave some folks there to take care of the farms and the vineyards. Now the bronze pillars which were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. There they took the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons and all the bronze vessels which were used in the temple service. The captain of the guard took away the fire pans and the basins, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea and the stands which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all the house of the Lord, the vessels which were beyond weight, beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and a bronze capital was on it. The height of the capital was three cubits, with a network and pomegranates on the capital of it all, all of it bronze. And the second pillar was like these, with network. Then the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. From the city he took one official who was overseer of the men of war and five of the king's advisors who were found in the city. And the scribe of the captain of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people who were in the land were found to be in the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Rabbah. The king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death in the land of Hamath. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. Now that's a long account. He builds a, a, a wall around the city. He sets siege to it. He basically starves them out, and then he takes captive and leads them away. A couple things here. Uh, first off, I want you to think about uh, both what's happened with the Assyrians, both what's happened with the Babylonians, what happened to Israel, what happened to Judah. Keep in mind, uh, these things are history. Now, this is kind of a side note, something that I pulled out. Uh, as the Bible records these events in 2 Kings 14, 16, 17, 21, uh, 25, as the Bible records these events uh, from this period of captivity, it's also interesting to see they also match the dates from secular history. Now, what I mean by that is this. Uh, the Bible is not removed from history. It actually unfolds in history. And so if you look at the uh, secular history and you see the rise of the Assyrian Empire and its decline, it's going to match up with this. When you see the decline of the Assyrians and the rise of the Babylonians, it's going to match up with this. And so this isn't just something absent uh, from history. This happens in history. And when you go look at world history, it's going to match up the kings, the dates, the rise of the empire, the fall of the empire, uh, its conquest. Uh, it's going to match these verses in Scripture. This was actually world history. This is what's actually happening in the world. Now, here's... Some would say, well, that helps us confirm the truth of the Bible, the validity of the Bible. And it does. When we say, well, this happened, and that's the exact year that it did happen, that gives me confidence in the Bible. That adds validity to the Bible. To me, it's more than that. It does do that, but it also shows me God's in control. 
And so when he says to Isaiah, 100 years before this this is going to happen, then it's going to happen, and we read that it does happen, we know God's in control. And so uh, we see there's validity to God's word, yes, but we also see a confirmation. God is in control. God has always been in control. All right, we're going to turn a corner right here, and I think this is the most interesting part of the entire lesson. Um, Life in exile was not what I think we would expect. I think we think, well, they were taken away to prisoner of war camps. Maybe it was like Nazi Germany, they're taken away, and life is hard. It's It's not how it happens. What happens is, instead of harsh treatment, they are encouraged to assimilate and to fit in. So they take them to a new land. They don't rough them up. They tell them, hey, get a job. Hey, open a business. Fit in, find things you like to do, get a hobby. They encourage them to assimilate. Um, The goal is that they're not going to be enemies of the empire, but participants in the empire. I start to listen to how that sounds familiar today. Hey, we don't want you to be an enemy of the empire. We want you to fit into the empire. Pay taxes. Make sure your taxes get here. We don't care what you do. Just keep the taxes coming. And as that happened, the goal was that they would be less like the people that they had come from and more like the system that now ruled over them. Less like the people where they had come from and more like the system that ruled over them. Take on their traditions. Take on their holidays. Take on their hobbies. Live like they would live. Take on their lifestyles. For the northern kingdom, they were exceedingly successful. And I think both of them are successful. But for, the, for Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, his, history tells us uh, that the businesses were run by those folks. The wealthy people became those folks. And so the, these Hebrews, these Jewish folks, as they, as they get to the foreign land, they actually do well. And they, they have businesses and they're successful. Right, so that leads to the next question. So who wants to go home? So who wants to go home? Here's the deal. It actually worked. This is the most amazing part of the exile account to me. The people actually became so comfortable in their foreign land, became so comfortable in those foreign foreign settings that they began to compromise. They began to take on the things of that culture and they, they begin to very well fit in. Now, think about Daniel. Remember, Daniel's taken there, and he's told, eat these things. And he says, I won't eat these things. Compromise like this. And he says, I won't compromise like that. Um, here's what happens. The northern tribes, Israel, actually become so immersed in the Assyrian culture that they were completely swallowed up in it. Now, listen to that. They went there. And they became so involved in it, they became, became so melted into it that they actually became no longer distinguishable. Uh, sometimes you hear the lost tribes of Israel. These are the lost tribes of Israel. They go there as the 10 tribes of Israel. They don't come back. They breed in. They mix in. They intermarry. They, they take on the culture so much that they're no longer distinguishable from the Assyrians. 
When it's time to go home, guess what? They don't go home. They, that's their home. That's what they look like. They actually were distinct and special, and now they've melted in. Think about that. Remember the promises made to Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These were the people of God. They had the word of God. They had the promises of God, and they so compromised that you couldn't pull them out of the world that they existed in. I was thinking about that this afternoon. You take five crayons, five different colors. Here's five crayons, five colors, and you get a little, a little smelting pot, and you put them in there, and you melt them. Guess what never comes back out of that? Red never comes back out of that. You know what never comes out of that? Green never comes back out of that. That's what happens to Israel. They so melted into the Assyrians, they're called the lost tribes of Israel. They never come back. Judah saw almost the same fate. Uh, they tried to keep a national identity. Uh, they wrote letters back and forth. They tried to remind each other of their religious practice. Um, they kept family records. Uh, Israel doesn't even keep family records. They try to keep family records. They try to remember God, but here's the deal. Remember the king makes the, the edict, you can go home? Most of them don't go home. So the northern tribe just melts in. They're gone. The southern tribe, Judah, you can go back to Jerusalem. You can go home. Most of them don't go home. Most of them say, I like it here. I, I'm wealthy here. I've got fun stuff here, and they don't go home. Remember the song that we started with? Oh, we sat down by the riverbank and we wept. Oh, if we forget Jerusalem, let our tongues stick to the top of our mouth. Hey, y'all can go back to Jerusalem. Who wants to go there? What do we have there? They actually had so compromised that they liked it where they were at instead of going back to where, where God had blessed them. Here's the question. How does this resemble our day? How does this resemble our day? So mixed in the culture, can't tell us apart. So mixed in the culture that we don't want to leave it. Well, I would follow Christ, but it's going to be too inconvenient. It's going to be weird for my family. It's going to be too costly. Here's another question. What are ways that we are tempted to look like the culture? And I, I can answer that, but, but you, maybe you have different ideas. Where are we tempted to fit in? Well, what is a marriage? Well, I'm not going to say anything. Well, uh, what is God's plan for sex? Well, I'm not going to say anything. What does God think about abortion? That's a political issue. I'm not going to say anything. And we're tempted to look like the culture. Do you know, think about this for a second. Is it still the best way to prosper Find acceptance and popularity and comfort still to fit in. And isn't that the truth? We live in, in houses that look the same. We drive in cars that look the same. Hey, we don't want our kids to stand out. We don't want our kids to be weird at school. Uh, isn't the best way to, to, to be popular and to have acceptance still to fit in? Here's the last question. Does being a distinct recognizable people committed to God really appeal to us. And I, and I think about that. Now, I know we're supposed to say, yes, it does. Well, do you talk like your lost neighbors? Do you watch the same movies as your lost neighbors? Do you, do you have the same actions as your lost neighbors? 
If, you're, if the folks on your block were to walk outside, could they tell you that you're a follower of Jesus Christ by how you speak and how you live and how you do business? Does being a distinct, recognizable people committed to God actually appeal to us? I think the exact opposites happen. Do you know, listen to this, the way that you grow a church today, the way that you get a church to have attendance today is not to say we're not like y'all. It's not to say we're going to live by the word of God. The way you grow a church today is to say we're just like you. We're just like you. Whole ad campaigns, we're just like y'all. We're just like y'all. Instead of saying, no, we're distinct. No, we're going to live by the word of God. Yes, we're sinners, but we're forgiven by Christ, and we're going to live to honor Christ. Today, we just want to say, you know what? We're just like y'all. We're just like y'all. Hey, we, do you believe? It doesn't matter. We're just like y'all. We did this back in, in our study of First and Second Peter. We're called to be different. We're, we're actually commanded to be different. If we live according to the priority set of God's word, we would be different. They had so melted in, they matched the culture. Last part I want to look at is the God of captivity. The God of captivity. Now, this is an interesting thing today. Here's an interesting question. Where was God in all of this? Hey, they burned down Jerusalem. Where's God at? Hey, they took us all captive. Where's God at? Hey, they, they killed a whole bunch of us. Where's God at? Where is God during this? He could have delivered them from it. He could have taken Nebuchadnezzar's army and run them in the ocean. He could have delivered them. Here's something interesting. God actually caused it. He actually said he would cause it. He told them 100 years earlier, I, I will use these people that don't even love me, don't even like me, I'll use them as an instrument of my hand. And he, he said he would cause it. Wouldn't, now listen, I'm talking about today. Wouldn't a loving God lift his people out of hardships and trouble? And maybe you're sitting here today and saying, man, life is hard. Why didn't God get me out of this? Man, this diagnosis is bad. Why didn't God get me out of this? Would a, wouldn't a loving God do that? Here's the, here's the point. The truth is this. God is more concerned with the hearts of his people than he is with the ease and the comfort of his people. You know what? He'd rather have people that love him. He'd rather have people that honored him and walked with him instead of having people that never had any problems, never had anything go wrong. God is more concerned about our hearts. You know what? He wants people to say, you know what? God is gracious, and he's always gracious. God is kind, and he's faithful, and I learned it in hard times, and I learned it in hard things. Last part, we're about done. I, I, I put these two questions together. I think they're very interesting. What do you think God's purpose was in foretelling of this judgment? A hundred years before it happens, he says this is going to happen. What's his purpose in foretelling of his judgment? Well, here's the deal. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to listen. He, he doesn't exist to stomp us. He doesn't exist. He doesn't take any joy in, in punishment. He wanted him to repent. And so you know what? He's always up front, and he says, if you're going to walk in obedience, this is what it's going to cost you. But his goal was that they would repent and come back to him. Here's the second question. What do you think God's purpose was in executing this judgment? 
So why does he tell them it's coming? He wants them to turn back. What's his purpose in executing this judgment? It's the exact same thing. He wants them to come back. He wants them to come back. The purpose was always to drive them to repentance. He could crush them at any second. He could snuff them out at any second. His purpose in telling them ahead of time is that they would repent and come back. His purpose in carrying it out is that they would repent and come back. Listen, God's mission, his goal, his purpose is that we would walk in his grace, walk in obedience, and walk with him. And it would point to his glory. His purpose in telling them ahead of time was that they would miss the trouble. His purpose in telling them in the midst of trouble is that they would come back out of trouble. Sometimes we start thinking, Man, God just gives us a bunch of rules. God's just out for us. And if we don't do it right, he's going to stomp on us. No, that's not it at all. He has the best way to live. He's gracious toward us. And if he can keep us out of trouble, he'll tell us ahead of time. And if he can get us out of trouble, he'll act in the midst of our trouble. All right. What is God's purpose? And what has been his purpose? And is it still his purpose? I'm going to read, I'm going to go to the New Testament. I'm going to tie this back in. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Now this is talking to folks who've trusted Jesus Christ. And here's what God says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the New Testament, here in in these verses, he tells us, you know what? He always wanted a people for himself. He always wanted a people that didn't match the neighbors. He wanted a people that walked in obedience, that looked so different, that the lost world would say, you know what, there must be a living God. There must be a true God. And they're worshiping him, and, and I want to know him, and I want to worship him as well. The purpose has always been, the, the word there in the New Testament is a peculiar people. Here's, here's the call tonight. You know what, we're not supposed to mix in. You know what, we're not supposed to be accepted. You know what, we're not supposed to make friends with the lost world. Our kids, our youth tonight are hearing, you know what, your goals not fit in. Your goals not match up with this sorry world. Your goal is to be a weird, peculiar people unto God, pointing to his excellencies. Now, I think it's different than the New Testament. I think this is the best part. They were supposed to be obedient and supposed to point to him, but they couldn't. You know what? Same for us. We couldn't either. And we're saved and forgiven and restored in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, you know what? We become a royal priesthood a holy people through Jesus Christ with the same purpose that we would point to our Savior, that we would point to our God. Glad you're here. I better end it there. I'm going to run out of voice before we get done. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and leave us in a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Glad y'all were here tonight. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come tonight. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your truth. We're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you warn us ahead of time trying to keep us out of trouble. We're thankful that you're gracious to save us in the midst of trouble. We're thankful that you 
what a people, holy, peculiar, set aside unto you. We're thankful that that's available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that tonight that we have been taught, that we've been equipped, that we've been built up, and I pray that we would understand our goal is not to fit in. Our purpose is not to melt in, but we're to stand and point to you and point glory to you, our, our gracious Savior. I pray for our kids tonight as they're going to come under a, a, an onslaught of temptation and garbage, uh, re repulsive things as we talked about tonight. Our youth, I pray, Lord, that they have a resolve to stand, to not compromise the way Daniel didn't compromise, and again, to live as a people that would point glory back to you. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Glad you're here tonight.